Now, Phil Trammell is our speaker. He is a junior researcher at the Global Priorities Institute. He explores ways to apply the tools of economic theory to questions of long-term importance. He has served in economics research roles at the University of Chicago, NERA, NERA, I don't know how to say that, Economic Consulting, and the Cato Institute, and he holds degrees in economics and mathematics from Brown University. Thank you. All right. So uh, I'll be sharing a few thoughts about how to think about the timing of philanthropic efforts. Um, there are a lot of considerations that go into uh, this question, and I don't have time to cover most of them, of course. Um, but here are four that I'll sort of set up a simple model for weighing against each other, and given how they interact. The first is interest. Of course, if you, uh, if, if you wait to give, you'll, you'll have more to give later. The second is what might be called the philanthropic discount rate, the risk that if you wait too long, we could all be dead or your money could get stolen or something. The um, fact that as you get very large, you run into diminishing returns, so the value of having more, more resources is uh, you know, attenuated. And the fourth is a made-up word I playfully call hinginess to indicate the fact that, oh, um, yeah, hinginess. Um, just to kind of capture the intuition a lot of people, uh, especially in EA, have that certain moments in history are particularly ripe for having really long-lasting philanthropic impact. The most extreme version of this would be the hypothesis that right now we're living at the hinge of history, as some people have said. So we'll just, yeah. These are the considerations we'll weigh against each other. And uh, what we'll find is that in ordinary times, that is, if you just assume that hinginess is, is constant, you don't need to think about it, um, philanthropists should probably invest almost all of their resources. Um, the caveat I'll, I'll make here is that I'm using a rather broad definition of investment. So it's anything that you can do where you spend money now and more money gets put toward your moral goals um, in the sort of near subsequent future. So fundraising and movement building count. Building schools doesn't count, because even though it increases the uh, earnings of the people who go to the school, the money's out of your hands once, once the school's built. Um, but introducing the hinginess consideration makes things ambiguous, and uh, if, you, if it's extreme enough, then it means that you should spend a lot. Yeah, so then I'll just say a few words about the model and some of its implications. Uh, so first, what is the interest rate? Uh, it's quite high. So the U.S. stock market has averaged over 7% per year for the last century. Um, at that rate, your money doubles roughly every decade or multiplies by a factor of 2 to the 10 after 100 years. This is 1,048. Um, uh, no, 1,024. Um, it, that's probably not the uh, relevant interest rate for our purposes for various reasons, but um, let's say that the relevant interest rate that we face is something like 4.4%. If anyone's curious about um, talking about that in more detail, we can do that later. So the question is, if we are patient philanthropists, that is, if we want to do good but don't care about when we do it, we don't discount future welfare for its own sake or anything like that, uh, is this interest rate 
high or low? Is it an appealing opportunity for investing or uh, spending or even borrowing? Um, now, there's a, a very simple observation that should lead us to think that it's probably high from a patient perspective most of the time. And uh, this is what's known as the Ramsey formula, the sort of the backbone of this whole you know, literature and economics around, around discounting. And uh, of course, I acknowledge that it's much more complex than this. But to a first approximation, what the formula is saying is this. Let's say uh, there's consumption growth of 2% per year. And there's this parameter called eta, which captures the extent to which uh, marginal utility for people diminishes in, in consumption, such that, uh, such that the, it gets more expensive to help someone at rate eta times g per year, if, if they're getting richer at, at rate g per year. So if people are 2% richer next year, it's 2.4% more expensive to like, buy them a util. I keep doing that. Um, and the reason why people are, in fact, indifferent between a dollar and a dollar and 4.4 cents next year is because they discount their own welfare at some positive rate of, say, 2%. That's what delta denotes. And uh, that could even just be individuals' own like mortality risk could, could be part of that. Um, but if you're a patient philanthropist, you don't care about helping someone or helping their descendants, so still you should, you should sort of remove the delta from the equation. And so R is high for you. If you wait, you'll be doing 2% more good than you'll be doing just by uh, giving this year if your goal is to help people just by increasing their consumption. So, um, yeah, impatience is incorporated into market interest rates. So it's, in general, if you're patient, a good idea to invest. Now, there are some obvious caveats to this. So you don't want to completely remove the discount, uh, the, the pure time discount uh, rate. You do also care about risks like extinction or expropriation or value drift. And you won't actually do 2% more good each year. You wait because if you get, get really big, then further growth to your fund will have diminishing returns. Um, Though, if your goal is just to increase human consumption, um, you know, the idea that you'd get so big that you'd actually be sort of pushing down people's marginal utility probably wouldn't happen for a very long time. But anyway, so barring those caveats, that's sort of the, the, main, the main takeaway of this just very starting observation. That like in normal times, you probably want to take advantage of this in patients. Now, on first encountering this sort of simple observation, uh, excuse me. People often have um, uh, a, a sort of litany of objections, and unfortunately, I won't have time to go through them all here. So I'll just I'll just list them, give kind of one-liner responses, and anyone who's interested uh, can can raise the ones that that most concern them uh, afterward. But people sometimes say, "Well, what if the poor are getting richer at uh, such a fast rate that it's actually getting more expensive to help them each year faster than the interest rate?" Um, this can only happen for a temporary period of time. Uh, eventually, the good that you'll do, if if nothing structurally changes, will uh, by investing will um, outstrip the good that you would have done just by giving to the poor. Now, even if the factor is like two hundred and fifty to one, then in you know two hundred and seventy-five years or something, you'll you'll have done more good just by waiting. Uh, if if this delta equals two percent forever. Um, yeah, I'll, again, I, I, unfortunately I don't have time to go through this list, but 
Um, okay, so <laughs> if yeah, I mean, if your goal is just to help people and you don't, um, you think that people are sort of imperfect at helping themselves, and in particular by being impatient, then uh, the paternalism objection doesn't doesn't really hit home. Yeah, so. I want to give some intuitions beyond beyond this sort of glib one I just gave uh, for thinking that patience might be this sort of superpower we have that lets us, you know, if we make use of it, um, have a have a really big impact on the future. Suppose you're at an auction house and some baseball cards are up for auction, and you're a baseball fan. The fr- you and the friends you went in, in in with uh, are just obsessed with baseball cards. Um, you should be able to outbid the other people at the auction house for, for, for the baseball card. That's kind of the position we're in. So the future, if, in some sense, is just this large four-dimensional object. And we think a lot about it around here, and most people don't. There should be some way for the patient to buy it from its current owners. There'd be some weird sort of market failure if that weren't possible. And in fact, we can kind of literally do this. So if you buy land and then just sell a 100-year lease on the land, what you're doing is you're just buying the right to say what happens to the land from 100 years out till the end of time. And the 100-year lease on the land usually costs about 90% as much as, as, as the land. So basically, for a 90% discount, you're just getting the land, or like almost all of it in four dimensions. Um, that's just kind of what investment is. So investment is taking resources... Right, saying, "Hey, impatient person, you can you can have them just for a bit, you know, and then give me more back later." And then you just kind of grow in terms of how much how much you own. Just, yeah. People sometimes uh, speculate that we're living at a very special time with respect to giving, that our donations can have a really giant impact on the future. But what this amounts to is just the observation that we're also living at a special time with respect to the value of investing. If the dynamics of you know pure time preference play out. Eventually, patient people will own more and more of the world, and uh, interest rates will no longer incorporate pure time preference. In the sense, the future will have been bought. So this, too, is a fleeting opportunity. Um, so these are these, the, the first three considerations here, right? How to think about the problem when you're living in normal times. And, uh, yeah, so the idea here is just suppose that you face these diminishing returns, parameterized by eta. And um, so your impact at a given time is just some, some constant times how much you're spending transformed by these diminishing returns. And suppose also that the community of patient philanthropists, who is the audience for this talk, I'm not talking to any particular individual, but just, you know, what if everyone got together and coordinated optimally and just acted as a sort of single philanthropic agent? What if the community of patient philanthropists um, has no income stream but begins with some fixed pool of assets? For starters, just, just sort of assume that that's the situation we're in. Then how much should we spend? It turns out that it's this number right here and this formula. And uh, if eta equals 1, which is the case of logarithmic impact, which I don't think is too crazy, but yeah, then it's really simple. It's just your philanthropic discount rate. So if there's a half a percent per year that either we go extinct or your money gets stolen or something, then that also turns out to be the amount that you should spend every year. So you should invest 99.5% of your resources every year. If uh, on the other extreme, let's say you start out with no resources, but it's just you know a bunch of young people with like 
nothing in their pocket, but they've got an income stream coming, then what fraction of that income should be put to philanthropic purposes uh, each year and what portion should be invested? Right now, I think most small donors kind of think of themselves as being in this position, but they give everything that they uh, plan to give each year. They, they, they give it right that year instead of putting it in the fund to give later. Um, but it turns out that you should spend this ratio here. So the philanthropic discount rate divided by the, the market, like the market impatience rate. And so maybe you think that's about 25% if you think that D sub P is, delta sub P is like half a percent and delta is like 2% or something. Um, now if this, if this really played out forever, then you'd grow indefinitely a bit faster than the economic growth rate. And, you know, if you just, you know, really played it out, then in 400 years, this, this sort of project would end up being like 10% of global wealth or something. And um, in response, people will say, well, if this was so easy, then why hadn't it been done before? And that would be a whole separate, a whole separate talk. But I just want to say, uh, people have tried in various ways. I don't think they've done a great job, but um, it probably wouldn't work anyway, but that's already accounted for in delta sub p. Right? So half a percent per year philanthropic sort of expropriation rate would mean that the half-life of an effort to buy the future like this would be 200 years. So the, and after 400 years, there's only a quarter chance that it would remain. Um, but it's still the highest thing to do in expectation. That's just like what, what we solved for. So we, we shouldn't confuse these two things. It's like a small n, and the fact that it hasn't worked isn't that strong evidence that's like totally impossible. Okay, weighing against uh, this sort of model of patience is the possibility that we really are living in a special time. This was articulate, this uh, possibility was articulated by the late great philosopher Derek Parfit saying, uh, we live during the hinge of history. Given the scientific and technological discoveries of the last two centuries, the world has never changed as fast. If we act wisely in the next few centuries, our descendants could, if necessary, go elsewhere, spreading through this galaxy. Now, he said that in 2011, right? And he was talking about the next few centuries. So this hinge isn't very narrow, right? It's not like we should, we've got to spend this year because we're living at the hinge of history. You know, maybe the, the hingiest year will be in 400 years. So it's just worth kind of distinguishing what we mean when we talk about this hinge. And, or even if you even, and you might not even agree with him. But, and you might also look back over the past few hundred years and ask, what moments have been most pivotal and sort of leading up to the way that right now we are thinking about what best to do with civilization going forward. Maybe our values would have been very different if World War II had gone differently, right? Or if the American Revolution had. And John Adams said something kind of similar sounding in writing the U.S. Constitution. He also foresaw that what he was doing would last for thousands of years, right? So uh, we, we, we might also do best if you think that John Adams would have done best to, you know, save up for the time that, you know, we could uh, influence what, what happened with the galaxy, maybe we also could do better to, you know, influence what happens to developments in a long time. Spreading beyond the galaxy, I don't know. This is just the same formula from before. But now you have this H of T factor, which says how much impact you have. It just sort of scales how much impact you have as a function of how much you're spending at a given time. And I have no idea what the actual hinginess schedule has been. But, you know, you might think it looks something like this. I, but I'm just saying this is a concept. It's like a continuous version of... I didn't think it would be that funny. I'm just, it's just like, I'm just illustrating the concept. So it's a continuous version of the idea of being at the end of history. 
And um, yeah, we'll let H follow an arbitrary finite Markov process. Um, just means, you know, there's some, whatever state you're in, there's some chance it could move to any of the other states. Each has its own interest rate, each has its own discount rate. Um, and then the optimal spending policy turns out to be the one that satisfies this formula. And once again, we don't have time to walk through uh, the details here, but I'm happy to go back to it in Q&A if anyone's interested. Um, now, to shed just a little bit of light on how the hinginess consideration weighs against the, the more general like interest wait a long time by the future consideration. Um, let's work through the numbers about what this recommends for how fast you should spend if you're at a moderately hingy time. So not trivially, if you're if you just ratchet up the H high enough, then you should spend a lot. But let's let's look at sort of an intermediate case. Uh, so let's say the philanthropic discount rate is, to my mind, like relatively high. Let's say it's one percent per year. Uh, let's say eta equals one. So you face logarithmic returns. It turns out that the interest rate actually doesn't matter in this case. But yeah. Um, and let's say you have two states of which one isn't so hingy, that's state one, and state two is 10 times hingier. And uh, once you're in state one, you typically stay there. There's only a 10% chance that you'll get bumped into state two. And when you're in state two, there's an 80% chance you'll revert to state one. So if you find yourself in state two, you have a lot of sort of motivation to, to spend. Um, it turns out that in state one, you should spend 0.3% of your, there like the community of patient philanthropists should spend 0.3% of its resources, and in state two, it should only spend 2.4%. So even in like, like moderately hingy times, the patient philanthropist spends little. Okay, but how, how revisionary is this, really? When we talk about the community of patient philanthropists, it's kind of like a nebulous uh, crowd. But let's just think about the EA community. Well, maybe there's roughly 15 billion EA dollars, uh, if you count o Open Philanthropy and Ben, ben Dilo and uh, others. Um, and you also have to count uh, other resources that aren't, uh, you know, part of part, part of you know actual assets. So um, let's say there's 10,000 people involved in effective altruism, earning something like an average of $100,000 a year. You know, most less, but some much more. And let's say 10% of that, on average, is uh, being committed to EA causes rather than just being consumed privately. Right, so that would be $100 million a year now. And let's say that's growing at uh, G, right? Like, so wages are just growing. EA wages are growing at about the same rate as everyone else's. Um, but we discount it by R each year to get the present value of a given year's um, given years future wages, because we're just thinking about the net present value. So like if we could borrow against all those wages, how much how much would we have? So you get this geometric series, it's going to be $100 million divided by R minus G, so that's $5 billion of net present value of, of EA wages, so maybe $20 billion. So if you think that we're at a moderately hingy time right now, but not, you know, like like the moment in World War III that'll determine you know, the next everything. Um, then you should spend maybe something like 480 million. We should be spending something like 480 million dollars a year. OpenFill grant for the first third of this year totaled 125 million dollars. I mean, I chose these numbers just so it would be kind of similar. But um, 
No, 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 similar in the sense that, so just the first third of the year, right? So um, multiply it by three, you get 375 million, right? And then there's everyone that's not open fill. So maybe we're already spending roughly like what we would be spending if we were at a sort of moderately, uh, moderately injured time. Um, but I don't think this is the reason why people are, why the totals worked out this way. I mean, I think you have a lot of small um, donors who are just giving, uh, giving money as they earn it, like 100% of their, of their, the wages that they plan to give to charity right away. And then you have open fill spending less quickly than it plans to in, in the coming decade or two, um, because it's just capacity constrained with respect to research analysts. Um, that's my understanding. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think we might be spending about the right amount, but for the wrong reason or something like that. Um, so, what, you know, some justifications for this could be, yeah, we really are at a very hingy time, so we actually should be ratcheting up our, our spending. Um, or that much of the expenditure is what I'm calling investment. So if it's actually just fundraising or, or giving to, you know, 80,000 hours or something to get more people and to give later. Though that doesn't seem to be the case if you actually go down the open fill list, I don't think. Or the just, yeah, what EAs actually spend their money on. Um, or you might think that in the future, actually, there'll just be like so many people who are sympathetic to EA just exogenously. Or there'll just be like a long-term trend of social values toward our current moral values that um, we should spend a lot now because in a sense, that's, that's part of our assets. And um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit now that will soon be picked. But if you don't think that, right, if you think that actually we're currently a little bit inclined to overspend, uh, wh where should we go from here? Uh, one thing would just be to reconsider earning to give. I know it was popular in EA before this influx of money, particularly from OpenFill, and now it's sort of been deprioritized in a lot of people's minds. But maybe that was, that was a, a too strong a conclusion to draw. We should also reconsider perhaps the importance of frugality, right? Even if there aren't a lot of great seeming giving opportunities uh, right now, you can always just invest, and actually there's quite a lot of value in, in doing that. Um, as an individual donor, uh, I think it might be good to consider a donor-advised fund to get that, uh, that value-drift rate down. Um, donor-advised funds are these tax-exempt funds you can set up for yourself where you, you give to the fund, uh, grow, grow tax-free from within the fund, and then you have to give to a charitable cause eventually. You can't take the money out for yourself. Um, and I think, yeah, final implication is that if we really are planning it on these century-long timescales, um, we should think hard about how best to design long-lasting philanthropic institutions and how best to sort of coordinate around them um, as, as time proceeds. So, thank you. So questions now, thank you. And um, so does your conclusion mean that EAs should consider prioritizing finding good investment opportunities or more is it to set up an EA fund? Um, uh, those both seem like uh, worthwhile things to do. I mean, so I, I, yeah, I think something that should happen eventually um, and that a lot of people have expressed interest in and I think will happen before too long is uh, a fund to explicitly um, sort of meet the giving desires of people who think that we should try explicitly saving for a very long time. Um, but this model isn't actually recommending 
or like the way I'm thinking about it, I'm not really recommending that. I'm just saying if you conceive of all EA activity as this fund over time, um, maybe it should be allocating more toward, uh, you know, it, like, yeah, it should be considering the possibility of saving for a long time. If, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of a follow up to that. How do you take into account the fact that long term other people or other agents will be the ones actually spending your money? Yeah. Um, so this is a, a sort of value drift, an institutional value drift. Um, I think there are, if, if we think hard about it, we can, um, lower, lower the risk of that, never get it down to zero. But, um, one thing, you might do is instead of just entrusting this giant fund to like one person and having them hand it down through the generations, you could have a committee of people who vote on who to swap out, you know, once every 10 years or 20 years or something. Um, you could also look at to what extent institution, the institutions of history, like maybe religious institutions have been faithful to their values over time and see what could be learned from them. Um, yeah, this is just a big empirical question and, uh, it's, uh, I haven't thought about it as much as I'd like to, but. Thank you. Um, there is a clarifying question that says, can you explain what you said about buying land and renting it and something is 90%? <laughs> ah, so um, if there's some, yeah, there's what you can do with a patch of land that you don't own is um, buy it and then <laughs> um, sell a 100-year lease on it, right? So you just give someone else the right to do what they like with it for, for the first 100 years. And that, that you'll be paid about 90% what you paid for the land when you sell that 100-year lease. So you'll get 90% of your money back. So in a sense, you just paid 10% you know, of the price of the land for the right to say what happened to it for 100 years out onward. Okay. All right. Thank you. Those are all the questions that have come in. Thank you so much, Phil. Yeah.